Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Sydney. And this week's episode on Holy Mackerel is Is to to die die for. all know we've done a lot of two-part episodes recently and that's because we have had some really awesome interview guests which is super cool and it also is because we are getting better and better at interviews um, as time goes on which means we have so much content we have found ourselves with just you know way too many minutes of interview to fit into one podcast episode one hour-long podcast episode So what we think we are going to do, or what we've decided to do with this episode, is to split it into a a abridged version, the hour-long version that you guys are all used to hearing, and that will be here on all of these, you know, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, all of the normal platforms that you guys are used to listening on. And then we will have a full-length version of the entire interview episode that will be available to subscribers only. So this is everybody's chance to go subscribe to To Dive For and get some full-length content. We, as of right now, the unedited version is about an hour and 58 minutes for this episode. So you will, obviously we'll edit it down some, but there is so much good content and so many good stories in this episode that we really encourage you all to go and listen to the full-length version on our our subscriber page. So everyone head on over there. The link will be in the bio if you want to figure out how to access that uh, version of this podcast. And from now on, we'll be doing that with any of our longer episodes. We'll plan to have an abridged public version and then also a full-length version available for our subscribers. <laughs> Hello. Hey. <laughs> um, excuse my caveman gremlin voice as I uh, am a little sick, if you couldn't tell. Oh, man. Your little red nose. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Christmas yet. You can't be a reindeer, Sydney. I don't even know if reindeer could live in Australia. It's too hot. <laughs> Oh my goodness, how, other than being sick, how have you been? I've been good, um, I've been doing lots of PCRs and gels in the lab, and then also, as I mentioned in our last episode, I actually got to go out into the field with Aaliyah and catch some little shovel nose rays, we caught three of them, and they were so cute, and we just spent the day out in the the tidal flats seining for rays and it was super cool we were there for two high tides and got to see all the tidal changes in that area and saw some really cool birds so it was it was great how have you been that's so exciting um i've been good i can't complain um i just got back from a week in florida with lawrence which is just the best (laughs) it's it was so nice it was so good to see him i got to see a lot of my friends If, if you guys are listening to this shout out i missed you um 
But yeah, got to see a whole bunch of friends and go on an awesome kayaking trip. Um, so anyone in like the South Florida area, there's a little spot you can put in in Riverbend Park in like the Jupiter area, uh, Jupiter West Palm Beach area. And then you can follow the river all the way downstream to Jonathan Dickinson State Park where you pull the kayak out. So if you have your own kayak, this works really well. Or you can rent up at the top of the river and then you just have to park a car at the bottom so that you can truck the kayak back up. Um, but it was just an awesome, awesome kayak like trip. It was like a four or five hour little trip. Uh, we stopped at a little place called Crapper Nelson's, I think, which is this old trapper that used to live on the river and like get all of his food from these animals that he used to trap. And he was kind of like, I think my understanding of it is just that he was kind of like a recluse. Like he just like lived in the woods on this little river. And so he has like a little hut and like these cages that he used to keep like the raccoons and stuff that he caught and like the alligators. And so we stopped off there and ate little packed lunches and it was just so beautiful. And the water, there's been a lot of flooding in Florida, but the water because of that has been really, really clear. So it's like four feet deep and you can see straight to the bottom ah. you can see like the leaf litter on the bottom like the alligators you're passing over it was crazy um that's so yeah, cool. usually very tannic but but yeah it was super clear it was awesome oh my gosh i want to go do that now yeah it was, it was pretty cool so if uh anyone's in the area you should definitely make an attempt to do that here in the next couple weeks because it's it's beautiful right now that's awesome yeah well, I have a news piece for us Ooh. actually pertaining to some of the flooding that I was talking about. Yeah, there there has actually there's been a lot of flooding in South Florida. And even though I don't have an article to pull up right now with like a lot of the stats on it, I thought I would bring it up anyway, um, because there has apparently been like an unprecedented amount of flooding through the Everglades. Um, there's been a lot of rain upstream of the Everglades. So in like the Lake Okeechobee watershed and the watersheds in like the Kissimmee that lead down to the Everglades eventually. Um, and as a result, there has been, and there's also been a lot of rain in the Everglades area. So like in Fort Lauderdale, Miami. Um, and so as a result, there has been a huge amount of water that's flowing through the Everglades and it even has been being released from like the Lake Okeechobee watershed because that watershed is saturated as well. And so there is like unbelievable flooding in the Everglades. There has been super high mortality of unfortunately some of the endangered mammals that are native to the Everglades. And it is even displacing some of the indigenous groups in their uh, historical land in the Everglades region. So it's been really a big deal. It's also causing major flooding in the cities surrounding the Everglades as well. So I know like Fort Lauderdale has been experiencing some flooding as well. Um, so yeah, I just thought that that was kind of a pertinent thing to bring up at this time. And that, uh, I don't know, I think it's, I think it's important. You know that I, you know, my master's research had to do yeah. with the way that the Lake Okeechobee watershed is managed and that fresh water is released. And unfortunately, with so many uh, impermeable and impervious surfaces in Southeast Florida and uh, all of this urban development, 
It makes for some really tricky situations when it comes to proper flood management and freshwater management through local ecosystems. So thought I'd bring that one up. Yeah, that's a good one. I definitely thought of your master's research and how this might also be impacting our our corals on the Florida reef track. Yeah, it would definitely be interesting to see like what the um, salinity levels are right yeah. now on some of our offshore reefs in both like shallow and deeper areas. So yeah, I'd be really interested to find out if anyone has salinity numbers for <laughs> coastal Florida right now. Let me know. Oh my gosh. Well, speaking of Florida, our special guest today is actually someone I met and got to dive with a little bit in Florida. So without further ado, we'll have our special guest introduce himself. Hi, so my name is Charles Klingler. Um, I use he, him pronouns. I am a current master's student at Nova Southeastern University and former fisheries observer. So I used to work on fishing boats in mostly in Alaska, but also in Washington and Oregon. That's so cool. Okay. After we ask you our first question, I immediately have an off script question to ask you about Alaska. <laughs> um, but before we Good get to, to that, what is it that drew you to the water? Well, I have always been a nature kid and you know I my parents made sure I was playing outside especially my mom my mom loves the outdoors and animals and all that so she made sure I was always playing outside I was in boy scouts and my dad I went camping all the time and I grew up in Annapolis Maryland so I was right by the Chesapeake Bay pretty much my entire childhood and I grew up you know right by the bay I was always near the water and my family always took vacations to the beach either like in the bay or in north carolina we especially love going to the outer banks with our whole extended family so i was always by the water in the kid and additionally when i was five years old my grandfather taught me how to fish and that i i don't exaggerate when i say that literally changed my life i've loved fishing it's one of my favorite things to do in the entire world i go fishing all the time i love it's probably up there with scuba diving it's one of my top high hobbies so with, with all of that being so so connected to the water so in love with nature it's probably inevitable i was going to become a scuba diver and pursue the career in marine biology that i'm pursuing Haley, i know you got excited with that um because you have some ties to the chesapeake as well yeah, I do. Yeah, so oh, really? my like great 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 grandfather squatted on some land up in the Chesapeake Bay Rhodes River confluence area. So it's like it's now directly next to the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center, the CERC up there in Maryland. And it oh, literally Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm very familiar. One of my uh, good friend, one of my good friends, works up there, so I'm I'm familiar yeah. with Cirque and. So the work that I they literally, do. if you drive down the road to Cirque, Cirque is on the right hand side, and if you keep going like past the little right hand turn off to go to Cirque, and you go down until the road literally dead ends into the water. On the left hand side, there's like eight little cottages. They're white cottages, and that's my family's 
cottages. That's where I like grew up going to vacation every year. And oh, wow. Yeah. That's really yeah, it's cool. It's super crazy. Um, no, I, I love the Chesapeake Bay. It's a, it's a really nice place. And it's gotten so much better as far as like, I know it had a reputation of being just horribly polluted and dirty and all that, but it's, I've, you, I've seen a difference within like the last five years. It's, water's getting a little bit cleaner there's more like plant like algae and plant life that's coming back i've seen a lot more birds there on the bay you know fishery the fisheries are kind of yeah. hit or miss right now but that's something we can yeah, talk for about sure. that's so cool well it's cool that we like got some of our early start in similar areas it's it's yeah fascinating to see what these beautiful mm -hmm. habitats breed as far as you know humans being completely fascinated with them and going and you know dedicating parts of their lives to being in the water so uh super cool yeah i was gonna say i as a kid went to the outer banks with my whole extended family like every year and that's definitely also like a big reason why i got into marine bio which uh where in the outer banks did you go because we went to a couple different oh, places i don't know if i can remember because i was i was so little but I know we would do Outer Banks. Is Duck in the Outer Banks? Duck, Duck is one of okay. the towns that we we yeah. got a house in Duck a few times. The other place we That's got a we place did. was uh, Hatteras. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. Hatteras is also really nice. And then later on, we we left the Outer Banks for a couple of years, and now our main my family still does this from time to time. We go to uh, Topsail. I did an internship yeah, there. Yeah, Topsail's top <laughs> really, really pretty. It, it's got, it's just a pretty little community, and the beaches are really nice. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I, I did my first ever, like, internship or summer program there. I went and did, um, it was Sea Turtle Camp, but we got to intern mm -hmm. at the Karen Beasley Sea Turtle Hospital. Yep, so. I, I'm very familiar with that place. Yep. That's so funny. All mm -hmm. these spots on the East Coast. <laughs> Yeah, it's wild. Well, okay, so I said I immediately had an Alaska question for you. Um, so many questions about Alaska, first of all. But um, where did you live when you were on the land in Alaska? Obviously, as a fisheries observer, you spent a lot of time on the water, right? right? So when you're a fishery... So I, I guess I should explain to the, the listeners yeah. what a fisheries observer is. So mm -hmm. basically, yeah, basically, the way that a lot of commercial fishing is regulated is people are sent out to collect data from the fishing boats that so a fishing boat is going out and catching a lot of fish or shellfish or whatever it is they're targeting and there are two ways that you can figure out okay how much are they actually catching they can either self-report which some fisheries still do that but there's obviously an incentive for fisheries to you know not necessarily give you the most accurate information so the other possibility is for there to be independent individuals that are going out on these boats collecting data from the catch and then reporting it back to either to whatever you know regulatory agency whether it's the federal government or the state government or whatever agency is happens to be regulating the fishery so those people who go out on those boats and collect that data are called fisheries observers so that is what i did for about six years 
on fishing commercial fishing boats in Alaska, mostly. And the fishery that I worked in, which is the biggest one, is called the North Pacific Groundfish Fishery. So groundfish is kind of this catch-all term, which includes basically all the fish that are mostly either benthic or demersal that live near or on the bottom and are highly targeted for essentially industrial seafood. So these are fish yeah. that are being caught in very large quantities mm. that are being processed in like literally huge numbers and shipped overseas to a global market. So when I say like large quantities, I am talking wow. like millions of tons every year. The, this is the scale of fishing that is going on in this part of the world. So it, it sounds, yeah. it, it's it, even me when I started, you know, I knew something about commercial fishing, but I was even blown away by the scale at which it is occurring. And I know that as, you know, for people who are just like environmentalists and care about the ocean and we think we think about overfishing as a big problem we might immediately hear those numbers and think oh my god that sounds horrible like how is it possible that we are still doing this given what we know now and my answer to that is well we know a lot about these fish populations and we know a lot about the fisheries because we have people like fisheries observers who are out there constantly monitoring it so I think back in like the some like hmm. brief history back in like even as or late as like the 1970s the conventional wisdom amongst a lot of biologists and just fisheries managers is that fish stocks particularly this is targeted like at Atlantic cod it was believed that those stocks would never ever be exhausted because there was just so many of them we knew that these fish could reproduce very very quickly and we just did not think that humans had the capacity to completely overharvest them. But it turns out that was not true. So now that we know all of that, we know that no matter how sustainable a fishery might seem, it is still possible to overexploit it, which is why it's so important that we have people like observers out there collecting data to monitor the fishery and try to ensure that the fisheries aren't being overexploited. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great way to put it. And you mentioned the Atlantic cod. I remember that from like every single marine bio sustainability class I ever took. That's like such a classic example. Wow. That's, that's really cool. I honestly, I'm already learning things in this interview so this is really good this is informing me a lot which is really cool I feel like I don't know I feel like sometimes you get to a point where you think you know a lot of things and then someone walks in and introduces you to a whole new topic like not something I'd even really considered so I'm sure that you guys could teach me a lot about corals I mean <laughs> I know I know a decent amount about coral but I'm definitely more of a fish guy than a coral guy yeah uh, everyone has their own little specialist even within our field oh definitely yeah totally i i couldn't tell that you liked fish based on your giant uh shark backdrop when you came on 
Well, yeah, I mean, there are some sharks in Alaska. A lot yeah. of people think, oh, it's cold water. There aren't really sharks in cold water. There's actually a lot of sharks that live in cold water. They're just very, very different than the sharks that you typically see in, you know, our tropical oceans here, like in South Florida, yeah. where I'm currently living, cool. or over in Australia, or the Caymans. That's really cool. So this is probably a stupid question, um, but like... I assume these big fishing boats involve some sort of netting method of catching fish. Like you're not catching fish on like a line, right? Like so, there's actually a couple. Fish. There's actually a couple different gear types that these big boats use. So, okay. one method is trawling. So that's mm -hmm. my, that might be what you're thinking of, where they're just dragging a big net behind the boat, and whatever. Then the net is just kind of scooping up whatever happens to be in its path because unfortunately mm -hmm. you know yeah. fish are not exactly the smartest animals on earth so when something is behind them they tend to just swim in the away from it and unfortunately so the way a trawler works is they just they swim in a straight line yeah. the net's following them and eventually the fish just exhaust themselves and fall back into the net this is like the just keep swimming scene and finding nemo right the the giant net. Yeah, net. so that was a trawl. That was not the best representation of a trawl net, but kind kind of like that. If that's how you want to okay. visualize it, basically the way it the mechanically how it works is there are these two like big metal plates called doors, which they are connected to a line to like two lines attached to the sides of the boat. The doors just basically keep the net open. Mm -hmm. And then the net opens up. The top part of the net has like some floats on it to keep it kind of open. And then the bottom has some weights on it so that the net's kind of just moving through the water like a giant scoop, basically. And that's yeah. just scooping through schools of fish or they're towing over a wide area trying to scoop up whatever they can. And there's two types of trawls. There's a pelagic trawl. So they're towing it through the water column. And then there's a bottom trawl where they're just dragging the net along the bottom of the ocean to catch, like, benthic fish or demersal fish, stuff that's living near the bottom. Yeah. So that's trawling. That's one way that they catch fish. Another way that they catch fish is with long lines. So long lines you may have heard of, they're these, essentially these really, really long, they really are just long lines with thousands and thousands of baited fish hooks that are attached. So the they deploy this long line with the thousands of baited hooks, then they pull so that the fish will f sniff out the bait, eat the bait, and then get hooked. And then they pull up this line that's got a bunch of hooked fish on it. Then they remove the fish from the hooks, rebait, and set it again. So it's different than trawling, but it can be used to target different species. So there are certain species which are easier to catch on a trawl and certain species that are easier to catch on a long line. Mm -hmm. So then the other main way that they catch fish is through traps or pots. Mm -hmm. So you've seen, if you've seen Deadliest Catch, this is probably what you're thinking of there. So those are crab pots. They're used to catch crabs, but they can also rig those pots to catch fish. Hmm. So they... So the main f species they target for that, for those, on those boats is cod. 
Hmm. So Pacific Cod, they, they're able to they make a few adjustments to the pot. They usually use the same pots for like crab and for cod. They just have to make a few minor adjustments to them so that the fish will get drawn in and they won't escape. So that's the three, those are the three main fishing methods in the fishery that I was working at. You either got trawls, you got long lines, or you got pots. Man, this is a, this is really an interesting like topic to me. And I've worked with a couple of different, like I've worked with otter trawls before and stuff like in, in like all the. So an otter trawl, yeah. imagine, imagine like an upsized yeah. otter trawl. So like you've handled like the doors on yeah. an otter trawl. Yeah. How much do you think those doors weighed? Like maybe like 10, 20 mm, pounds. Well, when they're soaking like wet, I feel like maybe 20, 25, but yeah, not super okay, heavy so, by any means. So. One of the one of the doors on one of these trawl nets weighs three tons. These are enormous nets. Like some of the biggest trawl nets, when they're fully open, can swallow a seven forty seven airplane completely. Yeah. Like I said, the scale at which the fishing is occurring is almost unimaginable. Now, now, granted, this is the entire net. This isn't like the the end yeah. of the net where all the fish end up. So that that end is called the cod end. In uh, longline fisheries, this isn't just in Alaska. This is in longline fisheries everywhere. There is a very major concern about bird bycatch because as the lines are being deployed, the hooks are, have a brief period where they float on the surface. And it's very easy for a bird, if it's hungry, to just go for one of those hooks. If they get hooked, they're going down with the line. And sadly, that's because a lot of, you know, offshore birds are things like albatross. A lot of albatross are, yep. are endangered, and that's one cause of mortality. So one of the things that, that a lot of fishing boats have to do now is they have these bird deterrent devices that they have to deploy when they're deploying their lines. And they're specifically designed to keep the birds away from the hooks. They're not 100% effective, but they have really reduced seabird mortality in the fishing in the fishing fleet. It's something like numbers are like 95% reduction in mortality, which is huge because a lot as i said there's a lot of yeah. endangered species that are up there like one species that you see in alaska is the short-tailed albatross they are there's probably about 3000 left in the entire world they nest in tiny wow. islands in the pacific there's i think of those there, there's something like 400 nesting pairs and albatross like a lot of birds mate for life so if one individual dies it's not just that individual that individual's mate is not going to find another partner and so you've just removed by killing one bird you've removed an entire breeding pair from the population so it's very important that you know, stuff like bird deterrent devices are used on fishing boats because it is such a big deal for these bird populations okay so That's crazy a, a Gulf Coast story time 
from me and then like a question of have you like what your experience is on the flip side on the Alaskan side of this is uh, I know a lot of fisheries especially like shrimping fishers in uh, Gulf Coast regions I've you know been on the water in the Gulf Coast a lot I've spent not just Florida but Texas Louisiana uh, Mississippi and I've spent a lot of time around these like shrimp fishers and within that like the netting system that they use uh, they've involved turtle exclusion devices i believe this is shrimping i might be getting this confused but i'm pretty sure this is shrimp fishing okay uh so yeah turtle exclusion devices which are basically like a big opening that happens if the turtles get caught into the net they're they're big and they are heavy enough to weigh on this certain like trap door that excludes the turtle from the catch and then they can continue to catch shrimp and the shrimp won't trigger that same door opening theoretically but I also know that a lot of the sh- the shrimp fishers don't like to use the turtle exclusion devices because they feel like it limits their catch and it limits their success. And so even though they're mandatory in a lot of places, I know there's um, like some contention around the use of this device because the the shrimp fishers feel like they're not really getting all that they could out of their efforts. And so I was wondering if there was any, like, is that the purpose of a fisheries observer? Or is there any, like, kind of similar pushback from the community against things like bird deterrent devices or other other uh, fisheries limitations in, like, the Alaskan equivalent of that? So you bring up a very excellent point about fisheries management. And when you're trying to set regulations and protect certain fish stocks or certain bycatch species is your regulations are only as good as you as their enforcement so that's part of what we as fisheries observers are doing is we are observing what the behaviors the fishermen are conducting so if say a boat decides not to use a bird deterrent device we would write that down and we would report it now, it's very important to know that we observers are not enforcement officers. So it is not our job to tell fishermen what to do and what not to do. And that actually can lead to problems. For and I, There are observers that will occasionally sometimes try to overstep their authority, and that can lead to some some problems, as I'm sure you guys can imagine. But it's very important to – it's very important that – we are documenting everything that's going on and that can lead to and then it's up to the fisheries regulators to decide what the best course of action is in a case like that now on your specific examples about uh, turtle excluding devices or TEDs as they're they're called that there was definitely some resistance to their use when they were first introduced back in the I believe it was the 80s when they were first they first like got them figured out by now as far as i understand they're mostly used without controversy and a lot of it just has to do with time because you know obviously when something is brand new introduced there's going to be a lot of pushback against it you know a lot of com- the commercial fishing world is a very you know blue collar conservative workforce they're very resistant to any kind of major change so so and they don't particularly like it when someone who yeah doesn't have 
like a fishing experience is tries to tell them what to do. So obviously yeah. that that can be a problem. But nowadays, you know, the biggest thing thing I think which has improved like our fisheries regulations and our enforcement of them really is time because as time has gone on, we have got fishermen and regulators have gotten more and more used to these rules and there's a greater awareness of you know how how they work how they don't work because observer programs are actually not are have not been around for that long i mean the alaska program has been in place since the 1978 was when it was created this is with a law called the magnuson stevens act this has and that law has a lot of implications about uh, you. It actually was a monumentally important law, not just for fisheries, but also for um, defining U.S. territorial waters. And it, the idea has been modeled throughout the world. And it was the first law that really kind of set the stage for setting up fisheries observers. And it started in Alaska because that fleet, because the we knew that the fishery up there was valuable and we wanted to properly exploit it. And over the years, it has evolved and changed as things have gone on. And now there's fisheries observer programs in every part of the country. It's all it's all subdivided between the different fisheries management regions. So there's the Alaska region, there's the Cal there's the West Coast region, which is, you know, California, Washington, Oregon. There's the Pacific region, which is Hawaii, and also some off of, like, Guam and American Samoa. There's the Northeast, there's the Southeast, there's the Gulf of Mexico, and there's the Caribbean, which is Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, things like that. Would you explain what a fishery is and why crabs are a part of a fishery? That's a great question. So basically a fishery, the best way I can define it is it is a population of any living organism that is being harvested for the purposes of consumption. And generally there is given some, there's some uh, regionality to it. So we'll refer to like this population as from a certain area as a separate fishery as you know the same species from a different area so like i'm from maryland so mm -hmm. we're talking about the chesapeake bay striped bass fishery which is different than say the uh massachusetts striped bass fishery and to go to your specific mention on crabs so a fishery doesn't just mean fish. If it can mean basically any living creature that they're pulling out. So there are fisheries for invertebrates like crabs, lobsters. You know, we're in, I'm in Florida, spiny lobster fishery. That's a big deal down here. But also things like oysters, clams, scallops, mussels. Conk. And basically, conch, that's another big one. And basically any living creature there's like almost no like group of organisms that are immune to being targeted for, by humans for consumption. So 
in the Mediterranean, there's a fishery for sponges. That's where you get those like natural bath sponges. That's, that's the Mediterranean sea sponge fishery. And even though, and I know that most of the, it's mostly illegal now, but whaling, whaling is definitely a fishery. Even though there are some countries that still conduct whaling and even here in the United States or in Canada, we ha there are indigenous peoples that still have subsistence hunting for whales. So that, that is considered a fishery. So it's not just fish, it's basically any living animal in the ocean that humans are targeting for the purposes of consumption. Okay, I think we should move on to talk about some of Charles, his uh, thesis work down at Nova Southeastern. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your master's work? Yeah, absolutely. So I am currently in the fisheries and avian ecology lab at Nova Southeastern University. My major advisor is Dr. Dave Kerstetter. He's a fishery scientist. And my thesis project is looking at the parasites of king mackerel. And I'm looking to see if there's differences between the parasite population, between the parasite communities mm, of the Atlantic population fun. and the Gulf of Mexico population. Yeah. Science is so cool. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if you guys know what uh, king mackerel is. Or... I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> You guys have been, di I'll post the picture of one, but you guys have been diving in the Caribbean and Florida. So you, you probably have seen, you might have seen mm, Spanish I mackerel think so, yeah. or possibly a uh, Ciro mackerel. You see them quite, you can see them on the reefs. They're basically these really, these like streamlined, fast looking fish. They're kind of silvery, but they have some patterning. A king mackerel is basically that scaled up in size. So like a Ciro mackerel, like a big Ciro mackerel might be one or two feet long. A full like size, like fully grown king mackerel can be 50, 60 pounds. Okay. Uh, they're a little, they're like a, they're like a rough looking wahoo, kind of. Like a wahoo that you wouldn't want to catch <laughs> on the wrong side of town. Basically. Okay. <laughs> so they, uh, yeah, so like a wahoo, they've got that, that long torpedo shaped body with the small forked tail but they don't have the, uh, they've got like this kind of gunmetal gray coloration. So one, what kind of parasites live on the king mackerel? And then two, why are you so interested in the parasites? So that's a great question. And the answer to the first part is basically everything. So there's a lot of different uh, invertebrates that have parasitic forms. So I'm sure you guys are familiar with parasitic copepods. So you... S are those the tongue-eating parasites? So those are isopods, not copepods. But like, it, like if you've seen like, if you've seen like a picture of a mako shark and you see how it's got some like, what looks like little streamers coming off its tail, those are parasitic copepods. Yes. I just saw some the other day. So the main groups that I find on the inside are nematodes or roundworms. The other group you mentioned are the trematodes. 
internal parasites like cestodes and digenians are really, really interesting because they have these incredibly complex life cycles where if they, they have like a, they will go through multiple hosts throughout their lifetime. So they will, as like a, in their larval stage, they'll infect something like a crab or a shrimp or some invertebrate. And then that prey, then that animal is eaten by a predator. And then the parasite will metamorphose into a different stage. And then when that animal is eaten by another predator, it'll metamorphose into a different stage. And it can go through that, through several cycles of that until it reaches its definitive host, as it's called. So like it can have multiple intermediate hosts, but it has one definitive host. The definitive host is where the adult stage lives. And that's the phase that's going to reproduce and start the cycle over again. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. What what a what kind of foresight and like family planning do you have to have in order to be like, oh yes, I will I will travel from the snail to the bird to the human to the fish and then have babies. I love it. It's just good. It's really crazy. I love that. That's great. With all of this, I feel like we haven't hardly mentioned diving at all, but I know you do do diving. Would you like to tell us a little bit about, like, what you do as a dive? Like, does diving have to do with your work at all, or is it just recreational, or what do you do? So I got certified when I was 18 years old. When I was getting ready to go to undergrad, I was getting going to go for a marine biology program, and I thought... I'd better get dive certified because if I want to be a marine biologist, I should be a diver. And it's something I've been kind of interested in in a while as too. So I got certified and pretty much all my diving has been recreational. I haven't had the opportunity to do any diving related to my job, to work or to my, or to any research I've done. However, I am a familiar with various labs that do a lot of fisheries related scientific diving typically mm-hmm. it has to do with the deployment or retrieval of equipment typically things like acoustic receivers and other underwater equipment like traps and uh or um remote underwater video cameras and things like that so scuba diving can be part is something that i i think at some point if especially if i do enter a career in the future where I'm going to be doing that type of work, I will go for my AAUS certification. Right now, I'm awesome. I have my PADI Advanced, my PADI Deep Diver, and my PADI Nitrox certifications. So basically, all my nice. diving has been recreational. But I've had one of the nice things about being a fisheries observer is when you're right out of undergrad, it is one of the best paying jobs for a recent marine biology undergrad. So I made a lot of money doing that and I spent a lot of it on traveling and diving. So it was definitely, well, not, not, not really gear. It's mostly the travel. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, most of my diving has been in Florida, but I think overall mostly in Florida, but Internationally, I've been a lot of places. I've been to Bahamas. I've been to South Africa. I've been to Indonesia. I've been to the Maldives. I've been to Mexico. I've been to Palau. That was the last big international trip I did. 
I've been highly recommend. It's one of the best places I've ever Charles, been diving. you just did everything on my bucket list. How rude. <laughs> you didn't even invite me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can highly recommend all of those places, especially Maldives, Indonesia, and Palau. Really, yeah. the, none of the yeah. places I've been have been, like, I wouldn't recommend. It's all the places yeah. I've been. That's so awesome. I did the uh, Oceans Research Internship in uh, Mossel Bay, South Africa. I did that for four months. I went to I went to mostly Mossel Bay, but I also spent some time over in... I did a, a couple dives over off of Cape Town, and I did some other dives on the East Coast off of Durban. So it, it, I got to see a bunch of different habitats there. South Africa is just an amazing country. I, even if you don't go diving, I, I highly recommend visiting South Africa. With all the different experiences you've had as a fisheries observer, now as a master's student, and in the field of diving, are there any challenges that you've faced in the field? And if so, how have you overcame them? Well, I think this is a great time. I know we've been talking a lot about my research and diving and now diving in fisheries observing, but I really do want to talk about what the challenges of being a fisheries observer yeah. really are, because it is not an easy job. I, I'll just say this out front. You're, you're working on boats for long periods of time, so not everyone can handle that. I, I'm You guys both dive, and you've been instructors, so you know how you know how like people there's certain people when they get on so they step onto a boat they instantly get seasick yeah. or they just can't handle themselves you know that's gonna be a problem if you're working on boats for days or weeks at a time and then you're also working in like a part of the ocean that has some of the worst weather in the world you know i we're i am targeting we i am going out in the bering sea which you know you see them on you see it yeah. on deadliest catch that's what that is what the ocean looks like out there pretty regularly it's kind of scary i've been working out i worked up there every single month out of the year there was a time i was deployed up there and some parts of the year it can be nice and calm other times it can be very stormy very rough so you have to be able to work in those conditions and it can be very dangerous you know people lose their lives in that fishery every year. It's a very dangerous job, very dangerous environment to work in. Now, a significant part of my training that I did as an observer was safety training, just to be able to handle the hazards of working on boats for long periods. And beyond just the physical challenges, because obviously physically it's a demanding job, you're lifting a lot, you're having to deal with the rocking boat constantly, you're awake for long periods sometimes, so Physically, it's tough, but mentally, it's also very challenging because you're isolated. You know, there's no cell service on these boats. There's very little internet, so no social media. You might be able to send an email every other day. So you're, you have to be good at being separated from civilization for a decent amount of time. And then the other big, and some people just go crazy like that, you know, I honestly believe that all observers are crazy to some degree because of the amount of isolation they have to de deal with. And because the only people you're 
interacting with while you're out at sea are the other people that are on the boat. Yeah. And that can, that is the other big challenge is having how to work with fishermen and other people on these boats, because now don't get me wrong. Now I don't want to make it sound like these people are just like the worst and like terrible people. Cause I've met some truly amazing human beings working in the fishing industry and you know, I've made friends there a lot of cool dudes up there, but it can be a challenge working with people because they're, they are coming from a very different background than you are. Like I mentioned, it's a very blue collar workforce. Most mm -hmm. of the people who work in the fishing industry don't have a college degree. A lot of them don't even have high school diplomas. And also a lot of them, 99% of them are men. So, and you know, if you're a female observer, obviously that adds another challenge to that. I can't really speak to those challenges, obviously, because I'm not a woman, but I do have a lot of friends who are female observers who have had to deal with, you know, things like sexual harassment. And it is another part of our training that they try to get this going with. It, it's currently one of the big contentious things in obs the observing community right now is what's the bet, how do we really work with the industry to try to crack down on sexual harassment because it's something that's really something that should be, you know, really should be, it's definitely improved. It's, yeah, it's improved a lot better than it used to be, you know, even 10 years ago, it's much, much better than it used to be. And then another, another thing is a lot of the folks who are working up there are, either immigrants or like first generation folks. So there is a, a bit of a language and a cultural barrier that you might have to overcome because you're, there are people from all over the world who have worked, who work in the fishing industry in Alaska. I, if you name a country on the map name a country on the map, there's probably someone who's worked up there. I've met guys from various countries in Africa, all over Latin America, from Eastern Europe, from Asia. So there's a lot of, very diverse group of people that work up there. I mean, I did it longer than most people do. A lot of people will do it for like one or two years and then get out. I did it for six years because I did enjoy the job. I mean, you really do, the things I really enjoyed about it, you get to see things like just life and marine creatures that no one else will probably ever see in their lifetimes. I mean, I told you about all the weird deep sea fish we're seeing but even beyond that i've mentioned the birds yeah. i haven't really talked about the whales we want to we want to we bought we all have our own reasons for being there a lot of them you know anyone who has like any kind of like science degree goes out to be an observer a lot of us are marine bio people but there are other people who like don't know anything about marine biology they just want to they're looking for a easy job right out of graduation and it might be nowhere near their field. I knew people who were like chemistry majors who oh, did it, okay. or people who, people who were got were like pre med, and now they're they saved up some money, and now they're going into nursing school or things like that. That's super cool. Yeah, that's a cool point though. Like for people that don't have necessarily a marine bio or marine science degree, this is a job that you don't need those specific degrees for. And it could even maybe be a footstep into the marine bio world, you know? Yeah, of course. I mean, if you end up doing this and end up really liking it, you could potentially 
decide, hey, this is what I want to yeah. do. Mm-hmm. And I think you also brought up a good point. I feel like in marine bio, marine science, a lot of people uh, think it's all it's all butterflies and it's all, I don't know, what you see on social media, like everyone thinks it's just an amazing job with mm-hmm. no troubles. Um, definitely different troubles between like, say, academia and being a fisheries observer versus another being at a remote field station. So each has its own respective uh, pros and cons, but it's not all butterflies and rainbows. I feel like people sugarcoat it a lot. There's, it's not perfect. Life is not my 10 second reel with like a dolphin swimming by. That's not, (laughs) that's not my life. That's just one moment. Yeah. I mean, you guys are divers. You've been diving for work so i imagine there are there you guys have great days diving but you probably have like a lot you also have some like bad days diving but you also have a large proportion are just boring days where you don't really see a whole lot you're just kind of going through the motions of your work and that's kind of yeah definitely pros and cons good days and bad days but we're all in it because we love it. So we'd rather be dealing with the cons, Absolutely. the cons of marine bio than the cons of an office job or something like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yep. Um. So do you think that the uh, whale stories are your favorite moments from being in the field? Or I'm, you know, as we hinted out earlier, you have a giant shark behind your head. So like, is that story your favorite works or what is your favorite boat dive whatever related story that you want to share with all of us so i'm gonna cheat i'm not gonna share my favorite story okay because i'm going to post them all on your fishtails ah okay yay okay that way i can share that way i can share all my stories with your listeners for later episodes i know you guys are always looking for stories Oh, yeah. And I have a lot of really cool, I've got a lot of really cool stories, both from my internships, from my diving, from some, I can tell you some of my, like, probably a few of my observer stories, but just like the cool ones that are, you know, NDA approved and all yep. that. <laughs> no. And obviously the, uh, and obviously, but I, I will tell you guys a really, really kind of cute story from one of my more recent dives here in uh fort lauderdale so i i was at the uh the dania beach aerojacks which i'm i'm sure you guys are familiar with that place i love that dive site because it's such a it's so easy to get to and you know as long as the you know the the ocean's calm that day you can just walk right in it's very shallow so you can spend a long time down there I miss that dive site. And yeah, and you see a lot. You know, you see a lot of, there's a lot of fish on that site. You know, when I'm diving, I love seeing fish. You know, like schools of fish are my favorite thing. I'm always like, ooh, that's that fish. Ooh, that's that. It's like, it's like, uh, I have like both the, um, the Paul Human Ned DeLoach um, species ID guides. Yeah. I've got one from the, I've got one for the, for the Atlantic and one for the Indo-Pacific. Yeah. Because I'm just going through back through all my pictures from all my dives, just identifying everything that I saw. But but uh, the last time I was there, is like you know a few minutes into the dive, you know we, we get we do the surface swim, get to the start of the aerojacks, dive down, start the dive, and just start heading out towards first reef, 
the way the Aerojacks go. A few minutes into the dive, I see a Remora. And I'm like, ooh, if there's a Remora here, there's probably a larger creature here. It's like a like a shark or a sea turtle or something like that. So I'm looking around, looking around. I don't I don't end up finding it. I, I, if I had to guess, there was probably a nurse shark hiding that I just didn't see because sometimes I like to hide. But, yeah, I didn't find it. I'm like, oh, well. So I just I move on. A few minutes later, I feel this like tapping on my leg. And I'm like, what the heck is that? Because I'm like, I'm not near the reef, so I'm not scraping up against anything. So I, I look down at my leg, and I see that Remora has decided to stick himself to my leg. So I'm like, oh, hi, buddy. I will, you, you sure you want to hitch a ride to me? I'm not going to be here forever. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, basically, so I continue the dive. I don't try to, like, remove him because I know he's not hurting anyone. He's just kind of sitting there. That remora stayed on my leg the entire dive. And this is, like I said, it's shallow. So we were in the water for almost two hours. So uh, we go all the way up to the end of the Aerojacks. We come all the way back. He doesn't leave my leg until we until I we get to the yeah. surface at the very end of the dive. And then I saw him, I looked down, I saw him kind of swimming below us in the water column. You know, oh my gosh. I think he was a little irritated that his ride had left him. Oh. Okay, that is my dream. I want a Remora buddy so bad. I was just telling someone that the other day. I was like, you know, even if they left like a giant Remora shaped like hickey on my leg, I think I'd be fine. I wouldn't <laughs> even care. I'd just be like, that's okay, little buddy. And he just kind of, yeah, I, I was just swimming. I He wasn't obstructing me or anything like that. I would just look down every so often, see if he was still there. I'm like, yep, he's still there. He, he's uh he's not uh, leaving okay that's my goal this year i want to find a remora buddy this he's like year. there's no sharks around so i guess you're just my uh, second choice okay would would you say remoras or maybe even the king mackerel are your favorite marine organism or Ooh, wait oh you want to ask we got it we're Least switching favorite it up. marine organism yeah yeah we always ask everyone their favorite marine organism and recently i think it was lawrence or someone suggested that we start asking your least favorite marine organisms and i think this could lead to some well, i can answer i can answer things. both yeah go for it i can it. try to answer I yeah try to... so i don't know if i really have a least favorite because i like all life in the ocean but if I had to choose something, I really am not a fan of dinoflagellates. Now, I know that that's going to make both the coral people very angry. That's my study species. But, <laughs> We're but here, here, here's my reason why. Here's my reason why. So growing up in the Chesapeake Bay, obviously, I saw more than a few red tides. Yeah. And obviously, you know, down in Florida, we've been dealing with red tides. And red times are caused by blooms of toxic dinoflagellates and obviously obviously it's not their fault that we humans are dumping more nutrients into the ocean that are causing these blooms but obviously i don't like to see all these dead fish washing up i, I don't think that's cool uh also from like my fisherman side and seafood dinoflagellates are the cause of ciguatera poisoning mm, yeah which you find which you find in a lot of Seafood nowadays, especially in the Caribbean, it's becoming a big problem. Not as much in Florida, but you know you still hear about it from time to time. 
well, coral endosymbionts aren't the ones producing red tides, habs, They're or not. so my. My You're protected. Are safe. You're safe. They, yeah, yeah, they are not. So that would be probably my least my least favorite if I had to pick a least yeah, favorite. Yeah, that, that's a good Fair one. Enough. I wouldn't have guessed that. Okay, at the beginning, you kind of mentioned that you have a really good. I can't even remember if this was in the recording or not. Maybe it's when we were talking earlier. But you said you have a really good dive ick, and now I just want to know. I want to know what your dive ick is. Well. I'm sure you guys have experienced something similar, but thanks to, well, I won't, I won't go there, but I have, unfortunately, due to my genetics, I just have really, really bad sinuses. It hasn't led to any, like, real issues diving. Unfortunately, I probably produce (laughs) about a gallon of snot every time I dive, and as soon as I take my mask off, just giant globs of grossness coming out of my nose because mixed with seawater and everything it it just it's horrible yeah it's horrible it's my least favorite part about diving is just dealing with all the crap that's coming out of my nose but i'm sure you guys have similar experience oh yeah whenever you're whenever you're sick i mean don't dive when you're congested but if you have like a little residual sickness but it's always the worst when you get out of the water after you've been sick. So after all this time and all your crazy experiences, what keeps you coming back to the water? So I'm a big science fiction fan. I'm sure you guys are probably a big sci-fi fans. And so to me... Got my Star Wars mug right now. (laughs) So to me... Yeah, there you go. So to me... Scuba diving is like exploring an alien planet. And so that means all of your dive gear, that's your spacesuit. So you have to constantly watch like the the meters on your spacesuit, make sure your life support's okay. And all the creatures that you're seeing, these are all the weird aliens on this alien planet that you're exploring. And really that this I think is true no matter where you are, you will never see the same thing twice when you're scuba diving. So every time I'm going on a scuba dive, I'm exploring a new planet, and I'm seeing new aliens to interact with. So I, I really do think it's something like that. I, I just, I love the idea of, it really is a whole other world down there. And I really love the, the opportunity to go scuba diving, seeing this, and also to study it. You know, I'm, with my thesis project, I'm exploring a new dimension of this alien world that I never thought I would ever get into. And it's really fascinating. And yeah, maybe that's really, I love that answer. I know we've had a lot of people say like the unknown is what keeps them coming back. But I think putting it into that perspective of like an alien world, I, I really love that. And I definitely feel similar in that way about my love for the water. Yeah, that's a really, really good answer. That's a a very unique answer, too. So thank you so much for coming on today and for sharing so much with us. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our Fishtails episodes. 
Those will come out about once a month, and you can find the form to submit your stories online. Our website is under titleteasapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast. And if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at to dive for podcast and on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. See you guys next week. Bye. So, you know, if you listen to the end of our episode every week, you get a fish fact. And here with this week's fish fact is our special guest, Charles. A cool thing about rockfish is they're a type of fish that is incredibly long-lived compared to most other fish. So, I mean, there's a bunch of different species of rockfishes, but they there are a couple species that have been known to live for over 200 years.